Chapter 8 of Mutual Aid, a Factor of Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Enco. Mutual Aid, a Factor of Evolution by Peter Kropotkin. Chapter 8 Mutual Aid Amongst Ourselves. When bracket continued close bracket when we examine the everyday life of the rural populations of europe we find that notwithstanding all that has been done in modern states for the destruction of the village community the life of the peasants remains honeycombed with habits and customs of mutual aid and support that imported vestiges of the communal possession of the soil are still retained and that as soon as the legal obstacles to rural association were lately removed a network of free unions for all sorts of economical purposes rapidly spread among the peasants the tendency of this young movement being to reconstitute some sort of union similar to the village community of old such being the conclusions arrived at in the preceding chapter we have now to consider what institutions for mutual support can be found at the present time amongst the industrial populations for the last three hundred years the conditions for the growth of such institutions have been as unfavourable in the towns as they have been in the villages it is well known indeed that when the medieval cities were subdued in the sixteenth century by growing military states all institutions which kept the artisans the masters and the merchants together in the guilds and the cities were violently destroyed the self-government and the self-jurisdiction of both the guild and the city were abolished the oath of alliance between guild brothers became an act of felony towards the state the properties of the guilds were confiscated in the same way as the lands of the village communities and the inner and technical organization of each trade was taken in hand by the state lost gradually growing severity were passed to prevent artisans from combining in any way for a time some shadows of the old guilds were tolerated merchants guilds were allowed to exist under the condition of freely granting subsidies to the kings and some artisan guilds were kept in existence as organs of administration some of them still dragged on their meaningless existence but what formerly was the vital force of medieval life and industry has long since disappeared under the crushing weight of the centralized state in great britain which may be taken as the best illustration of the industrial policy of the modern states we see the parliament beginning the destruction of the guilds as early as the fifteenth century but it was especially in the next century that decisive measures were taken henry the eighth not only ruined the organization of the guilds but also confiscated their properties with even less excuse and manners as tulman smith wrote than he had produced for confiscating the estates of the monasteries open footnote tulman smith english guilds london eighteen seventy introduction page thirteenth close footnote edward the sixth completed his work open footnote the act of edward the sixth the first of his reign ordered to hand over to the crown all fraternities brotherhoods and guilds being within the realm of england and wales and over of the king's dominions and all manners lands tenements and other hereditaments belonging to them or any of them open bracket english guilds introduction page thirteenth close bracket see also okenkowski's england's with shaflich and winkelung in osgansch des, des mittelalters jena eighteen seventy nine chapters second to fifth 
and already in the second part of the 16th century we find the parliament settling all the disputes between craftsmen and merchants which formerly were settled in each city separately the parliament and the king not only legislated in all such contests but keeping in view the interests of the crown in the exports they soon began to determine the number of apprentices in each trade and minutely to regulate the very techniques of each fabrication the weights of the stuffs the number of threads in the yard of cloth and the like with little success it must be said because contests and technical difficulties which were arranged for centuries in succession by agreement between closely interdependent guilds and federated cities lay entirely beyond the powers of a centralized state the continual interference of its official paralyzed the trades bringing most of them to a complete decay and the last century economists when they rose against the state regulation of industries only ventilated a widely felt discontent the abolition of that interference by the french revolution was greeted as an act of liberation and the example of france was soon followed elsewhere with the regulation of wages the state had no better success in the medieval cities when the distinction between masters and apprentices or journeymen became more and more apparent in the fifteenth century unions of apprentices open bracket jeselenverband close bracket occasionally assuming an international character were opposed to the unions of masters and merchants now it was the state which undertook to settle their griefs and under the elizabethan statute of fifteen sixty three the justices of peace had to settle the wages so as to guarantee a convenient livelihood to journeymen and apprentices the justices however proved helpless to conciliate the conflicting interests and still less to compel the masters to obey their decisions the law gradually became a dead letter and was repealed by the end of the eighteenth century but while the state thus abandoned the function of regulating wages it continued severely to prohibit all combinations which were entered upon by journeymen and workers in order to raise their wages or to keep them at a certain level all through the 18th century it legislated against the workers unions and in 1799 it finally prohibited all sorts of combinations under the menace of severe punishments in fact the british parliament only followed in this case the example of a french revolutionary convention which had issued a draconic law against coalitions of workers coalitions between a number of citizens being considered as attempts against the sovereignty of a state which was supposed equally to protect all its subjects the work of destruction of the medieval unions was thus completed both in the town and in the village the state reigned over loose aggregations of individuals and was ready to prevent by the most stringent measures the reconstitution of any sort of separate unions among them these were then the conditions under which the mutual aid tendency had to make its way in the nineteenth century need it be said that no such measures could destroy that tendency throughout the eighteenth century the workers unions were continually reconstituted open footnote see sydney and beatrice webb history of trade unionism london eighteen ninety four pages twenty one to thirty eight close footnote nor were they stopped by the cruel persecutions which took place under the laws of seventeen ninety seven and seventeen ninety nine every flaw in supervision every delay of the masters in denouncing the unions was taken advantage of under the cover of friendly societies burial clubs or secret brotherhoods the union spread in the textile industries among the sheffield cutlers the miners and vigorous federal organizations were formed to support the branches during strikes and prosecutions footnote see in sydney webb's work the associations which existed at that time the london artisans are supposed to have never been better organized than in eighteen ten to twenty 
the repeal of the combination laws in eighteen twenty five gave a new impulse to the movement unions and national federations were formed in all trades Open footnote. the national association for the protection of labour included about one hundred and fifty separate unions which paid high levies and had a membership of about one hundred thousand the builders union and the miners unions also were big organizations open market web lc page one hundred and seven close bracket close footnote and when robert owen started his grand national consolidated trades union it mustered half a million members in a few months true that this period of relative liberty did not last long prosecution began anew in the thirties and the well-known ferocious condemnations of eighteen thirty two to eighteen forty four followed the grand national union was disbanded and all over the country both the private employers and the government in its own workshops began to compel the workers to resign all connection with unions and to sign the document to that effect unionists were prosecuted wholesale under the most insolvent act workers being summarily arrested and condemned upon a mere complaint of misbehaviour lodged by the master open footnote i follow in this mr webb's work which is replete with documents to confirm his statements close footnote strikes were suppressed in an autocratic way and the most astounding condemnations took place for merely having announced a strike or acted as a delegate in it to say nothing of the military suppression of strike riots nor of the condemnations which followed the frequent outbursts of acts of violence to practice mutual support under such circumstances was anything but an easy task and yet notwithstanding all obstacles of which our own generation hardly can have an idea the revival of the unions began again in eighteen forty one and the amalgamation of the workers has been steadily continued since after a long fight which lasted for over a hundred years the right of combining together was conquered and at the present time nearly one-fourth part of the regularly employed workers that is about one million five hundred thousand belong to trade unions open footnote great changes have taken place since the forties in the attitude of the richer classes towards the unions however even in the sixties the employers made a formidable concerted attempt to crush them by locking out whole populations up to eighteen sixty nine the simple agreement to strike and the announcement of a strike by placards to say nothing of picketing were often punished as intimidation only in eighteen seventy five the master and servant act was repealed peaceful picketing was permitted and violence and intimidation during strikes fell into the domain of common law yet even during the dock laborers strike in eighteen eighty seven relief money had to be spent for fighting before the courts for the right of picketing while the prosecutions of the last few years menaced once more to render the conquered rights illusory as to the other european states sufficient to say that up to a very recent date all sorts of unions were prosecuted as conspiracies and that nevertheless they exist everywhere even though they must often take the form of secret societies while the extension and the force of labor organizations and especially of the knights of labor in the united states and in belgium have been sufficiently illustrated by strikes in the nineties it must however be borne in mind that prosecution apart the mere fact of belonging to a labor union implies considerable sacrifices in money in time and in unpaid work and continually implies the risk of losing employment for the mere fact of being a unionist Open footnote. a weekly contribution of six d out of an eighteen s wage or of one s out of twenty five s means much more than ninety one out of a three thousand one income it is mostly taken upon food and the levy is soon doubled when a strike is declared in a brother union the graphic description of trade union life by a skilled craftsman published by mr and mrs webb and bracket pages three hundred and forty one sequence close bracket gives an excellent idea of the amount of work required from a unionist close footnote 
there is moreover the strike which a unionist has continually to face and the grim reality of a strike is that the limited credit of a worker's family at the bakers and the pawnbrokers is soon exhausted the strike pay goes not far even for food and hunger is soon written on the children's faces for one who lives in close contact with workers a protracted strike is the most heart-rending sight while what a strike meant forty years ago in this country and still means in all but the wealthiest parts of the continent can easily be conceived continually even now strikes will end with the total ruin and the forced emigration of whole populations while the shooting down of strikers on the slightest provocation or even without any provocation one footnote see the debates upon the strikes of falcano in austria before the austrian Reichstag on the tenth of may eighteen ninety four in which debates the fact is fully recognized by the ministry and the owner of the colliery also the english press of that time Close footnote, is quite habitual still on the continent and yet every year there are thousands of strikes and lockouts in europe and america the most severe and protracted contest being as a rule the so-called sympathy strikes which are entered upon to support locked out comrades or to maintain the rights of the unions and while a portion of the press is prone to explain strikes by intimidation those who have lived among strikers speak with admiration of the mutual aid and support which are constantly practised by them everyone has heard of the colossal amount of work which was done by volunteer workers for organizing relief during the london dock laborers strike of the miners who after having themselves been idle for many weeks paid a levy of four shillings a week to the strike fund when they resumed work or of the minor widow who during the yorkshire labor war of eighteen ninety four brought her husband's life savings to the strike fund of the last loaf of bread being always shared with neighbors of varad stock miners favored with larger kitchen gardens who invited four hundred bristol miners to take their share of cabbage and potatoes and so on all newspaper correspondents during the great stack of miners in yorkshire in eighteen ninety four knew heaps of such facts although not all of them could report such irrelevant matters to their respective papers open footnote many such facts will be found in the daily chronicle and partly the daily news for october and november eighteen ninety four unionism is not however the only form in which the workers need of mutual support find its expression there are besides the political associations whose activity many workers consider as more conducive to general welfare than the trade unions limited as they are now in their purposes of course the mere fact of belonging to a political body cannot be taken as a manifestation of a mutual aid tendency we all know that politics are the field in which the purely egotistic elements of society enter into the most entire combinations with altruistic aspirations but every experienced politician knows that all great political movements were fought upon large and often distant issues and that those of them were the strongest which provoked most disinterested enthusiasm all great historical movements have had this character and for our own generation socialism stands in that case paid agitators is no doubt the favourite refrain of those who know nothing about it the truth however is that to speak only of what i know personally if i had kept a diary for the last twenty-four years and inscribed in it all the devotion and self-sacrifice which i came across in the socialist movement the reader of such a diary would have had the work heroism constantly on his lips but the men i would have spoken of were not heroes they were average men inspired by a grand idea every socialist newspaper and there are hundreds of 
of them in europe alone has the same history of years of sacrifice without any hope of reward and in the overwhelming majority of cases even without any personal ambition i have seen families living without knowing what would be their food tomorrow the husband boycotted all round in his little town for his part in the paper and the wife supporting the family by sewing and such a situation lasting for years until the family would retire without a word of reproach simply saying continue we can hold on no more i have seen men dying from consumption and knowing it and yet knocking about in snow and fog to prepare meetings speaking at meetings within a few weeks from death and only then retiring to this hospital with the words now friends i am done the doctors say i have but a few weeks to live tell the comrades that i shall be happy if they come to see me i have seen facts which would be described as idealization if i told them in this place and the very names of these men hardly known outside a narrow circle of friends will soon be forgotten when the friends do have passed away in fact i don't know myself which most to admire the unbounded devotion of these few or the sum total of petty acts of devotion of a great number every choir of a penny paper sold every meeting every hundred votes which are won at a socialist election represent an amount of energy and sacrifices of which no outsider has the faintest idea and what is now done by socialists has been done in every popular and advanced party political and religious in the past all past progress has been promoted by like men and by a like devotion cooperation especially in britain is often described as joint stock individualism and such as it is now it undoubtedly tends to breed a cooperative egotism not only towards the community at large but also among the cooperators themselves it is nevertheless certain that at its origin the movement had an essentially mutual aid character even now its most ardent promoters are persuaded that cooperation leads mankind to a higher harmonic stage of economical relations and it is not possible to stay in some of the strongholds of cooperation in the north without realizing that the great number of the rank and file hold the same opinion most of them would lose interest in the movement if that faith were gone and it must be owned that within the last few years broader ideas of general welfare and of the producer solidarity have begun to be current among the cooperators there is undoubtedly now a tendency towards establishing better relations between the owners of the cooperative workshops and the workers the importance of cooperation in this country in holland and in denmark is well known while in germany and especially in the rhine the cooperative societies are already an important factor of industrial life one footnote the thirty one thousand four hundred and seventy three productive and consumers associations on the middle rhine showed about 1890 a yearly expenditure of 18 million four hundred and thirty seven thousand five hundred three million six hundred and seventy five thousand were granted during the year in loans Close footnote. it is however russia which offers perhaps the best field for the study of cooperation under an infinite variety of aspects in russia it is a natural growth and inheritance from the middle ages and while a formerly established cooperative society would have to cope with many legal difficulties and official suspicion the informal cooperation the hotels makes the very substance of russian peasant life the history of the making of russia and of the colonization of siberia is a history of hunting and trading hotels or guilds followed by village communities and at the present time we find the hotel everywhere among each group of ten to fifty peasants who come from the same village to work at a factory in all the building trades among fishermen and hunters among convicts on their way to and in siberia among railway porters exchange messengers custom house laborers everywhere in the village industries which give occupation to seven million men from top to bottom of the working world permanent and temporary for production and consumption under all possible aspects until now many of the fishing grounds 
on the tributaries of the caspian sea are held by immense artels the ural river belonging to the whole of the ural cossacks who allot and reallot the fishing grounds perhaps the richest in the world among the villagers without any interference of the authorities fishing is always made by artels in the ural the volga and all the lakes of northern russia besides these permanent organizations there are the simply countless temporary artels constituted for each special purpose when ten or twenty peasants come from some locality to a big town to work as weavers carpenters masons boat builders and so on they always constitute an hotel they hire rooms hire a cook open bracket very often the wife of one of them acts in this capacity close bracket elect an elder and take their meals in common each one paying his share for food and lodging to the hotel a party of convicts on its way to siberia always does the same and its elected elder is the officially recognized intermediary between the convicts and the military chief of the party in the hard labor prisons they have the same organization the railway porters the messengers at the exchange the workers at the custom house the town messengers in the capitals who are collectively responsible for each member enjoy such a reputation that any amount of money or banknotes is trusted to the hotel member by the merchants in the building trades hotels of from ten to two hundred members are formed and the serious builders and railway contractors always prefer to deal with an hotel than with separately hired workers the last attempts of the ministry of war to deal directly with productive hotels from ad hoc in the domestic trades and to give them orders for boots and all sorts of brass and iron goods are described as most satisfactory while the renting of a crown iron work open bracket vote kings close bracket to an hotel of workers which took place seven or eight years ago has been a decided success we can thus see in russia how the old medieval institution having not been interfered with by the state open bracket in its informal manifestations close bracket has fully survived until now and takes the greatest variety of forms in accordance with the requirements of modern industry and commerce as to the balkan peninsula the turkish empire and caucasia the old guilds are maintained there in full the estates of servia have fully preserved their medieval character they include both masters and journeymen regulate the trades and are institutions for mutual support in labor and sickness Open footnote. British Consular Report, April 1889. While the Amkari of Caucasia, and especially at Tiflis, add to these functions a considerable influence in municipal life. Open footnote. A capital research on this subject has been published in Russian in the Zapisky open bracket, Memoirs close bracket, of the Caucasian Geographical Society, volume 6 to Tiflis, 1891, by C. Egazarov, close footnote. In connection with cooperation, I ought perhaps to mention also the friendly societies, the unities of odd fellows, the village and town clubs organized for meeting the doctor's bills, the dress and burial clubs, the small clubs very common among factory girls, to which they contribute a few pence every week, and afterwards draw by lot the sum of one pound, which can at least be used for some substantial purchase, and many others. A not inconsiderable amount of sociable or jovial spirit is alive in all such societies and clubs, even though the credit and debit of each member are closely watched over but there are so many associations based on the readiness to sacrifice time health and life if required that we can produce numbers of illustrations of the best forms of mutual support the lifeboat association in this country and similar institutions on the continent must be mentioned in the first place the former has now over 300 boats along the coast of these isles and it would have twice as many were it not for the poverty of the fishermen who cannot afford to buy lifeboats the cruise consists however of volunteers whose readiness to sacrifice their lives for the rescue of absolute strangers to them is put every year to a severe test 
every winter the loss of several of the bravest among them stands on record and if we ask these men what moves them to risk their lives even when there is no reasonable chance of success their answer is something on the following lines a fearful snowstorm blowing across the channel raged on the flat sandy coast of a tiny village in kent and a small smack laden with oranges stranded on the sands nearby in these shallow waters only a flat bottom lifeboat of a simplified type can be kept and to launch it during such a storm was to face an almost certain disaster and yet the men went out for four hours against the wind and the boat capsized twice one man was drowned the others were cast ashore one of these lost a refined coast guard was found next morning badly bruised and half frozen in the stew i asked him how they came to make that desperate attempt i don't know myself was his reply there was the wreck all the people from the village stood on the beach and all said it would be foolish to go out we never should work through the surf we saw five or six men clinging to the mast making desperate signals we all felt that something must be done but what could we do a one hour passed two hours and we all stood there we all felt most uncomfortable then all of a sudden through the storm it seemed to us as if we heard their cries they had a boy with them we could not stand that any longer all at once we said we must go the women said so too they would have treated us as cowards if we had not gone although next day they said we had been fools to go as one man we rushed to the boat and went the boat capsized but we took hold of it the worst was to see who drowning by the side of the boat and we could do nothing to save him then came a fearful wave the boat capsized again and we were cast ashore the men were still rescued by the deep boat ours was caught miles away i was found next morning in the snow the same feeling moved also the miners of the ronda valley when they worked for the rescue of their comrades from the inundated mine they had pierced through thirty-two yards of coal in order to reach their entombed comrades but when only three yards more remained to be pierced fire depth enveloped them the lamps went out and the rescue men retired to work in such conditions was to risk being blown up at every moment but the raps of the entombed miners were still heard the men were still alive and appealed for help and several miners volunteered to work at any risk and as they went down the mine their wives had only silent tears to follow them not one word to stop them there is the gist of human psychology unless men are maddened in the battlefield they cannot stand it to hear appeals for help and not to respond to them the hero goes and what the hero does all feel that they ought to have done as well the sophisms of the brain cannot resist the mutual aid feeling because this feeling has been nurtured by thousands of years of human social life and hundreds of thousands of years of pre-human life in societies but what about those men who were drowned in the serpentine in the presence of a crowd out of which no one moved for the rescue it may be asked what about the child which fell into the regent's park canal also in the presence of a holiday crowd and was only saved through the presence of mind of a maid who let out a newfoundland dog to the rescue the answer is plain enough man is a result of both his inherited instincts and his education among the miners and the seamen their common occupations and their everyday contact with one another create a feeling of solidarity while the surrounding dangers maintain courage and pluck in the cities on the contrary the absence of common interest nurtures indifference while courage and pluck which seldom find their opportunities disappear or take another direction moreover the tradition of the hero of the mine and the sea lives in the miners and fishermen's villages adorned with a poetical halo but what are the traditions of a 
remotely london crowd the only tradition they might have in common ought to be created by literature but a literature which would correspond to the village epics hardly exists the clergy are so anxious to prove that all that comes from human nature is seen and that all good in men has a supernatural origin that they mostly ignore the facts which cannot be produced as an example of higher inspiration or grace coming from above and as to the lay writers their attention is chiefly directed towards one sort of heroism the heroism which promotes the idea of the state therefore they admire the roman hero or the soldier in the battle while they pass by the fisherman's heroism hardly paying attention to it the poet and the painter might of course be taken by the beauty of the human heart in itself but both seldom know the life of the poorer classes and while they can sing or paint the roman or the military hero in conventional surroundings they can neither sing nor paint impressively the hero who acts in those modest surroundings which they ignore if they venture to do so they produce a mere piece of rhetoric footnote. escape from a french prison is extremely difficult nevertheless a prisoner escaped from one of the french prisons in eighteen eighty four or eighteen eighty five he even managed to conceal himself during the whole day although the alarm was given and the peasants in the neighbourhood were on the lookout for him next morning found him concealed in a ditch close by a small village perhaps he intended to steal some food or some clothes in order to take off his prison uniform as he was lying in the ditch a fire broke out in the village he saw a woman running out of one of the burning houses and heard her desperate appeals to rescue a child in the upper story of the burning house no one moved to do so then the escaped prisoner dashed out of his retreat made his way through the fire and with a scalded face and burning clothes brought the child safe out of the fire and handed it to its mother of course he was arrested on the spot by the village gendarme who now made his appearance he was taken back to the prison the fact was reported in all french papers but none of them bestired itself to obtain his release if he had shielded a warder from a comrade's blow he would have been made a hero of but his act was simply humane it did not promote the state's ideal he himself did not attribute it to a sudden inspiration of divine grace and that was enough to let the man fall into oblivion perhaps six or twelve months were added to his sentence for having stolen the state's property the prison's dress Close footnote. the countless societies clubs and alliances for the enjoyment of life for study and research for education and so on which have lately grown up in such numbers that it would require many years to simply tabulate them or another manifestation of the same ever working tendency for association and mutual support some of them like the brutes of young birds of different species which come together in the autumn are entirely given to share in common the joys of life every village in this country in switzerland germany and so on has its cricket football tennis nine pins pigeon musical or singing clubs other societies are much more numerous and some of them like the cyclist alliance have suddenly taken a formidable development although the members of this alliance have nothing in common but the love of cycling there is already among them a sort of freemasonry for mutual help especially in the remote nooks and corners which are not flooded by cyclists they look upon the csc the cyclist alliance club in a village as a sort of home and at the yearly cyclist camp many a standing friendship has been established the kegelbruder the brothers of the nine pins in germany or a similar association so also the gymnast societies open bracket three hundred thousand members in germany close bracket the informal brotherhood of paddlers in france the yak clubs and so on such associations certainly do not alter the economical stratification of society but especially in the small towns they contribute to smooth 
social distinctions, and as they all tend to join in large national and international federations, they certainly aid the growth of personal friendly intercourse between all sorts of men scattered in different parts of the globe. The Alpine clubs, the Jags Juverin in Germany, which has over 100,000 members, hunters, educated foresters, zoologists, and simple lovers of nature, and the International Ornithological Society, which includes zoologists, breeders, and simple peasants in Germany, have the same character. Not only have they done in a few years a large amount of very useful work, which large associations alone could do properly, open bracket maps, refuge huts, mountain roads, studies of animal life, of noxious insects, of migration of birds, and so on, close bracket, but they create new bonds between men, two alpinists of different nationalities who meet in a refuge hut in the Caucasus, or the professor and the peasant ornithologist who stay in the same house, are no more strangers to each other, while the Uncle Toby's society at Newcastle, which has already induced over 260,000 boys and girls never to destroy birds' nests and to be kind to all animals, has certainly done more for the development of human feelings and of taste in natural science than lots of moralists and most of our schools. We cannot omit, even in this rapid review, the thousands of scientific, literary, artistic, and educational societies. Up till now, the scientific bodies, closely controlled and often subsidized by the state, have generally moved in a very narrow circle, and they often came to be looked upon as mere openings for getting state appointments, while the very narrowness of their circles undoubtedly bred petty jealousies. Still, it is a fact that the distinctions of birth, political parties, and creeds are smoothed to some extent by such associations, while in the smaller and remote towns, the scientific, geographical, or musical societies, especially those of them which appeal to a larger circle of amateurs, become small centres of intellectual life, a sort of link between the little spot and the wide world and a place where men of very different conditions meet on a footing of equality to fully appreciate the value of such centers one ought to know them say in siberia as to the countless educational societies which only now begin to break down the states and the church monopolies in education they are sure to become before long the leading power in that branch to the formal unions we already over kindergarten system and to a number of formal and informal educational associations we have the high standard of women's education in russia although all the time these societies and groups had to act in strong opposition to a powerful government Open footnote. The Medical Academy for Women, open bracket, which has given to Russia a large portion of her 700 graduated lady doctors, close bracket, the four ladies' universities, open bracket, about 1,000 pupils in 1887, closed that year and reopened in 1895, close bracket, and the High Commercial School for Women are entirely the work of such private societies. To the same societies, we owe the high standard which the girls' gymnasia attained since they were opened in the 60s. The 100 gymnasia now scattered over the empire, open bracket, over 70,000 pupils, close bracket, correspond to the high schools for girls in this country. All teachers are, however, graduates of the universities. Close footnote. As to the various pedagogical societies in Germany, it is well known that they have done the best part in the working out of the modern methods of teaching science in popular schools. In such associations, the teacher finds also his best support. How miserable the overworked and underpaid village teacher would have been without their aid. Open footnote. The variant for Verbretung, Kemetsnusslicher, Kentnitz, although it has only 5,500 members, has already opened more than 1,000 public and school libraries, organized thousands of lectures, and published most valuable books. 
Footnote. All these associations, societies, brotherhoods, alliances, institutes, and so on, which must now be counted by the 10,000 in Europe alone, and each of which represents an immense amount of voluntary, unambitious, and unpaid or underpaid work, what are they but so many manifestations under an infinite variety of aspects of the same ever-living tendency of men towards mutual aid and support? For nearly three centuries, men were prevented from joining hands even for literary, artistic, and educational purposes. Societies could only be formed under the protection of the state or the church or as secret brotherhoods like Freemasonry. But now that the resistance has been broken, they swarm in all directions. They extend over all multifarious branches of human activity. They become international, and they undoubtedly contribute to an extent which cannot yet be fully appreciated to break down the screens erected by states between different nationalities. Notwithstanding the jealousies which are bred by commercial competition and the provocation to hatred which are sounded by the ghost of a decaying past, there is a conscience of international solidarity which is growing both among the leading spirits of the world and the masses of the workers since they also have conquered the right of international intercourse and in the preventing of a european war during the last quarter of a century this spirit has undoubtedly had its share the religious charitable associations which again represent a whole world certainly must be mentioned in this place there is not the slightest doubt that the great bulk of their members are moved by the same mutual aid feelings which are common to all mankind unhappily the religious teachers of men prefer to ascribe to such feelings a supernatural origin many of them pretend that man does not consciously obey the mutual aid inspiration so long as he has not been enlightened by the teachings of a special religion which they represent and with saint augustine most of them do not recognize such feelings in the pagan savage moreover while early christianity like all other religions was an appeal to the broadly human feelings of mutual aid and sympathy the christian church has aided the state in wrecking all standing institutions of mutual aid and support which were anterior to it or developed outside of it and instead of the mutual aid which every savage considers as due to his kinsmen it has preached charity which bears a character of inspiration from above and accordingly implies a certain superiority of the giver upon the receiver with this limitation and without any intention to give offence to those who consider themselves as a body elect when they accomplish acts simply humane we certainly may consider the immense numbers of religious charitable associations as an outcome of the same mutual aid tendency all these facts show that a reckless prosecution of personal interests with no regard to other people's needs is not the only characteristic of modern life by the side of this current which so proudly claims leadership in human affairs we perceive a hard struggle sustained by both the rural and industrial populations in order to reintroduce standing institutions of mutual aid and support and we discover in all classes of society a widely spread movement towards the establishment of an infinite variety of more or less permanent institutions for the same purpose but when we pass from public life to the private life of a modern individual we discover another extremely wide world of mutual aid and support which only passes unnoticed by most sociologists because it is limited to the narrow circle of the family and personal friendship Footnote. very few writers in sociology have paid attention to it dr tering is one of them and his case is very instructive when the great german writer and law began his philosophical work Der Zweck in right purpose in law close bracket he intended to analyze the active forces which call forth the advance of society 
and maintain it and to thus give the fury of the sociable man he analyzed first the egotistic forces at work including the present wage system and coercion in its variety of political and social laws and in a carefully worked out scheme of his work he intended to give the last paragraph to the ethical forces the sense of duty and mutual love which contribute to the same aim when he came however to discuss the social function of these two factors he had to write a second volume twice as big as the first and yet he treated only of the personal factors which will take in the following pages only a few lines el dargun took up the same idea in egoismus and altruismus in their national economy leipzig adding some new facts Buchner's love and the several paraphrases of it published here and germany deal with the same subject under the present social system all bonds of union among the inhabitants of the same street or neighborhood have been dissolved in the richer parts of the large towns people live without knowing who are their next door neighbors but in the crowded lanes people know each other perfectly and are continually brought into mutual contact of course petty quarrels go their course in the lanes as elsewhere but groupings in accordance with personal affinities grow up and within the circle mutual aid is practiced to an extent of which the richer classes have no idea if we take for instance the children of a poor neighborhood who play in a street or a churchyard or on a green we notice at once that a close union exists among them notwithstanding the temporary fights and that that union protects them from all sorts of misfortunes as soon as a mite bends inquisitively over the opening of a drain don't stop there another mite shouts out feather sits in the hole don't climb over that wall the train will kill you if you tumble down don't come near to the ditch don't eat those berries poison you will die such are the first teachings imparted to the urchin when he joins his mates outdoors how many of the children whose playgrounds or the pavements around model workers dwellings or the quays and bridges of the canals would be crushed to death by the courts who drown in the muddy waters were it not for that sort of mutual support and when a fair jack has made a slip into the unprotected ditch at the back of the milkman's yard or a cherry chick lizzie has after all tumbled down into the canal the young brood raises such cries that all the neighborhood is on the alert and rushes to the rescue then comes in the alliance of the mothers you could not imagine open bracket a lady doctor who lives in a poor neighborhood told me lately close bracket how much they help each other if a woman has prepared nothing or could prepare nothing for the baby which she expected and how often that happens all the neighbors bring something for the newcomer one of the neighbors always take care of the children and some other always drops in to take care of the household so long as the mother is in bed this habit is general it is mentioned by all those who have lived among the poor in a thousand small ways the mothers support each other and bestow their care upon children that are not their own some training good or bad let them decide it for themselves is required in a lady of the richer classes to render her able to pass by a shivering and hungry child in the street without noticing it but the mothers of the poorer classes have not that training they cannot stand the sight of a hungry child they must feed it and so they do when the school children beg bread they seldom or rather never meet with a refusal a lady friend who has worked several years in whitechapel in connection with a workers club writes to me but i may perhaps as well transcribe a few more passages from her letter nursing neighbors in cases of illness without any shade of remuneration is quite general among the workers also when a woman has little children and goes out for work another mother always take care of them if in the working classes they would not help each other they could not exist i know families which continually help each other with money with food with fuel for bringing up the little children in cases of illness in cases of death the mine and vine is much less sharply observed among the poor than among the rich shoes dress hats and so on 
what may be wanted on the spot are continually borrowed from each other also all sorts of household things last winter the members of the united radical club had brought together some little money and began after christmas to distribute free soup and bread to the children going to school gradually they had one thousand eight hundred children to attend to the money came from outsiders but all the work was done by the members of the club some of them who were out of work came at four in the morning to wash and to peel the vegetables five women came at nine or ten open bracket after having done their own household work bracket, for cooking and stayed till six or seven to wash the dishes and at meal time between twelve and half past one twenty to thirty workers came in to aid in serving the soup each one staying what he could spare of his meal time this lasted for two months no one was paid my friend also mentions various individual cases of which the following are typical annie w was given by her mother to be boarded by an old person in wilmot street when her mother died the old woman who herself was very poor kept the child without being paid a penny for that when the old lady died too the child who was five years old was of course neglected during her illness and was ragged but she was taken at once by mrs s the wife of a shoemaker who herself has six children lately when the husband was ill they had not much to eat all of them the other day mrs m mother of six children attended mrs m g throughout her illness and took to her own rooms the elder child but do you need such facts they are quite general i know also mrs d open bracket oval hackney road close bracket who has a shoeing machine and continually shoes for others without ever accepting any remuneration although she has herself five children and her husband to look after and so on for everyone who has any idea of the life of the labouring classes it is evident that without mutual aid being practised among them on a large scale they never could pull through all their difficulties it is only by chance that a worker's family can live its lifetime without having to face such circumstances as the crisis described by the ribbon weaver joseph Guterich in his autobiography open footnote leaked and shadows in the life of an artisan coventry eighteen ninety three close footnote and if all do not go to the ground in such cases they owe it to mutual help in good and rich case it was an old nurse miserably poor herself who turned up at the moment when the family was sleeping towards a final catastrophe and brought in some bread coal and bedding which she had obtained on credit in other cases it would be someone else or the neighbours will take steps to save the family but without some aid from other poor how many more would be brought every year to irreparable ruin Footnote. many rich people cannot understand how the very poor can help each other because they do not realize upon what infinitesimal amounts of food or money often hangs the life of one of the poorest classes lord shaftesbury had understood this terrible truth when he started his flowers and watercress girls fund out of which loans of one pound and only occasionally two pounds were granted to enable the girls to buy a basket and flowers when the winter sets in and they are in dire distress the loans were given to girls who had not a sixpence but never failed to find some other poor to go bail for them of all the movements i have ever been connected with lord shaftesbury wrote i look upon this watercress girls movement as the most successful it was begun in eighteen seventy two and we have had out eight hundred to one thousand loans and have not lost five hundred and one during the whole period what has been lost and it has been very little under the circumstances has been by reason of death or sickness not by fraud open bracket the life and work of the seventh earl of shatesbury by edwin hodder volume third page three hundred and twenty two london eighteen eighty five to eighty six
close bracket several more facts in point in ch booth's life and labour in london volume first in miss beatrice potter's pages from a work girl's diary open bracket nineteenth century september eighteen eighty eight page three hundred and ten close bracket and so on Mr. Plimsoll, after he had lived for some time among the poor on 7S6D a week, was compelled to recognize that the kindly feelings he took with him when he began this life changed into hearty respect and admiration when he saw how the relations between the poor are permeated with mutual aid and support and learned the simple ways in which that support is given. After a many years' experience, his conclusion was that when you come to think of it, such as these men were, so were the vast majority of the working classes. Open footnote. Samuel Plimsoll, our seaman, cheap edition, London, 1870, page 110. Close footnote. As to bringing up orphans, even by the poorest families, it is so widely spread a habit that it may be described as a general rule. Thus, among the miners, it was found, after the two explosions at Warren Vale and at Lone Hill, that nearly one third of the men killed, as the respective committees can testify, were thus supporting relations other than wife and child. Have you reflected, Mr. Plimsoll added, what this is? Rich men even comfortably to do men do this, I don't doubt. But consider the difference. Consider what a sum of one shilling subscribed by each worker to help a comrade's widow or 6D to help a fellow worker to defray the extra expense of a funeral means for one who earns 16S a week and has a wife and in some cases five or six children to support. Open footnote. Our seamen, US, page 110, Mr. Plimsoll added, I don't wish to disparage the rich but i think it may be reasonably doubted whether these qualities are so fully developed in them for notwithstanding that not a few of them are not unacquainted with the claims reasonable or unreasonable of poor relatives these qualities are not in such constant exercise which seem in so many cases to smother the manliness of their possessors and their sympathies become not so much narrowed as to speak stratified they are reserved for the sufferings of their own class and also the woes of those above them they seldom tend downwards much and they are far more likely to admire an act of courage than to admire the constantly exercised fortitude and the tenderness which are the daily characteristics of a british workman's life and of the workmen all over the world as well but such subscriptions are a general practice among the workers all over the world even in much more ordinary cases than a death in the family while aid in work is the commonest thing in their lives nor do the same practices of mutual aid and support fail among the richer classes of course when one thinks of the harshness which is often shown by the richer employers towards the employees one feels inclined to take the most pessimist view of human nature many must remember the indignation which was aroused during the great yorkshire strike of eighteen ninety four when all miners who had picked coal from an abandoned pit were prosecuted by the colliery owners and even if we leave aside the horrors of the periods of struggle and social war such as the extermination of thousands of workers prisoners after the fall of the paris commune who can read for instance revelations of the labor inquest which was made here in the forties or what lord shaftesbury wrote about the frightful waste of human life in the factories to which the children taken from the workhouses or simply purchased all over this country to be sold as factory slaves were consigned open footnote life of the seventh earl of shaftesbury by edwin hoder volume first pages one hundred and thirty seven to 138 
Who can read that without being vividly impressed by the baseness which is possible in men when his greediness is at stake? But it must also be said that all fault for such treatment must not be thrown entirely upon the criminality of human nature. Were not the teachings of men of science, and even of a notable portion of the clergy, up to a quite recent time, teachings of distrust, despite and almost hatred towards the poorer classes, did not science teach that, since serfdom has been abolished, no one need be poor unless for his own vices, and how few in the church had the courage to blame the children killers, while the great numbers thought that the sufferings of the poor and even the slavery of the negroes were part of the divine plan, was not nonconformism itself largely a popular protest against the harsh treatment of the poor at the hand of the established church with such spiritual leaders the feelings of the richer classes necessarily became as mr pimsel remarked not so much blunted as stratified they seldom went downwards towards the poor for from whom the well-to-do people are separated by their manner of life and whom they do not know under their best aspects in their everyday life but among themselves allowance being made for the effects of the wealth accumulating passions and the futile expenses imposed by wealth itself among themselves in the circle of family and friends the rich practice the same mutual aid and support as the poor dr e herring and l dargoon are perfectly right in saying that if a statistical record could be taken of all the money which passes from hand to hand in the shape of friendly loans and aid the sum total would be enormous even in comparison with the commercial transactions of the world's trade and if we could add to it as we certainly ought to what is spent in hospitality petty mutual services the management of other people's affairs gifts and charities we certainly should be struck by the importance of such transfers in national economy even in the world which is ruled by commercial egotism the current expression we have been harshly treated by that firm shows that there is also the friendly treatment as opposed to the harsh that is the legal treatment while every commercial man knows how many firms are saved every year from failure by the friendly support of other firms as to the charities and the amounts of work for general well-being which are voluntarily done by so many well-to-do persons as well as by workers and especially by professional men everyone knows the part which is played by these two categories of benevolence in modern life if the desire of acquiring notoriety political power or social distinction often spoils the true character of that sort of benevolence there is no doubt possible as to the impulse coming in the majority of cases from the same mutual aid feelings men who have acquired wealth very often do not find in it the expected satisfaction others begin to feel that whatever economists may say about wealth being the reward of capacity their own reward is exaggerated the conscience of human solidarity begins to tell and although society life is so arranged as to stifle that feeling by thousands of artful means it often gets the upper hand and then they try to find an outcome for that deeply human need by giving their fortune or their forces to something which in their opinion will promote general welfare in short neither the crushing powers of a centralized state nor the teachings of mutual hatred and pitiless struggle which came adorned with the attributes of science from obliging philosophers and sociologists could weed out the feeling of human solidarity deeply lodged in man's understanding and heart because it has been nurtured by all our preceding evolution what was the outcome of evolution since its earliest stages cannot be overpowered by one of the aspects of that same evolution and the need of mutual aid and support which had lately taken refuge in the narrow circle of the family or the slum neighbours in the village or the secret union 
of workers reasserts itself again even in our modern society and claims it tries to be as always has been the chief leader towards further progress such are the conclusions which we are necessarily brought to when we carefully ponder over each of the groups of facts briefly enumerated in the last two chapters End of chapter eight recording by Enko.